Kriya Yoga, Accelerating Human Evolution. I am Naya Swami Parvati. Joining me today are Naya, uh, Tyagi Peter and Naya Swami Dharmadas. So this topic is interesting, as have been all the topics this week. And I just want to say that this week has been amazing to me. Um, each year when we have Spiritual Renewal Week, it is amazing. Just the, And I mean the, the consciousness, the energy, all of that. But somehow this year has topped all the others. It feels like Swami's here, Swami Kriyananda. It feels like Yogananda's here. All of our masters are here because of how we have gathered together with a real focus spiritually and to, as the topic says, uh, human evolution, how Kriya Yoga accelerates that. Well, I think this gathering here shows that. It's, it's not usual. And even here at Ananda Village, uh, when you all go away and we just have our various areas at the Expanding Light and the Sangha office and the market and the property of 800 acres to take care of, it comes down again to what are each of us doing spiritually to keep that vibration alive because it's very easy for it to just kind of slip away. And I was thinking about when I first received Kriya initiation. I don't really remember too much about the exact initiation, but it was an August like this, Spiritual Renewal Week in 1972, and I remember it being a very holy occasion. It was a real turning point in my life. When I came here, I had two desires, like Swami, but they were slightly different. One, I knew I needed to meditate and I needed other people to help me do that. But I also wanted to know what I could do about it. Not just, you know, I was coming here for the wonderful vibrations and all of that. I knew it was going to take hard work. And, uh, and somehow I had only been here uh, living here about a month and a half when that Kriya initiation happened. And I thought, that's it. Now I have what I need to really engage in the spiritual life myself. I mean, having all the people here, there were about 90, 100 people here at that time. It was wonderful. You know, I mean, we, we didn't have anything. We didn't have money and we didn't have many cars. And, you know, the places we lived were pretty simple. But we were living what Yogananda talks about when you, uh, he said in that talk, Simplicity of living and high thinking lead to the greatest happiness. And I was very greatly happy. Because all of the other stuff outwardly, it really, you know, here we are, it's hot, it's dry, and, you know, you could say, well, you know, ho-hum. But it's, it's electric. It's filled with the vibrations of our masters. And you could be almost anywhere But here at Ananda, we focus those vibrations, and the heart and core of it 
is the practice of Kriya Yoga. When Swami Kriyananda gave those initiations, which he did regularly, Kriya initiations, in the early years, at the review the next morning, he did everything naturally, the initiation the night before, the fire ceremony, the Kriya review, the breakfast, the, you know, <clears throat> on and on it went. But during that review, he would hold up his hands and he'd say, Less than this is how many times I have ever missed my practice of Kriya Yoga. And I thought, wow, well, there's a real challenge. And I, I took that to heart uh, because I, I just knew intuitively, inwardly, that without that, it could easily slip away. There are so many things. Delusion is so powerful and strong and you know you could just go off in a lot of different directions my karma wasn't that but even so I thought and he was saying it as a challenge because it's so easy to take a beautiful initiation the inspiration of the moment just to come for spiritual renewal week the inspiration of the week and then it goes away somehow. We, we lose it somehow. And I thought, you know, Kriya Yoga, the, and you take this vow at the Kriya initiation, I will. Meaning, I will practice faithfully and regularly this practice of Kriya Yoga every day, twice a day, for the rest of my life. Now that is a very powerful statement to the divine, and a very powerful rebuke to Maya. <laughs> so look out when you, when you do that, because both things happen. You're moving in a direction that is very focused and very powerful, because Kriya Yoga has the ability to crack Maya. It has the ability to break open that delusive power that's always in operation. And so do take it seriously. I remember when you take Kriya, and I would recommend, I know not everyone here has Kriya Yoga initiation, but you might want to head in that direction because it is the very powerful commitment spiritually aligned with the gurus that really moves you forward. And just to say this topic, accelerating human evolution through Kriya Yoga, it's an, ev- it's an evolution of consciousness. It's not that, oh, well, now human beings are going to become something really different looking. Although, it, interestingly enough, just in my lifetime, I've noticed that women are taller than than me. I was an average height in the beginning. Now most women are taller than me. Foot sizes are bigger. And it's said that in higher ages that human beings are 8 feet, 12 feet tall. And they live for maybe two or 300 years. It's normal. So as those yugas go along, that does happen. But we're in the midst of something that goes beyond that cycle of yugas. Because remember, it's a cycle. And we've, I'll just say this lightly because we did talk about this in several classes, that cycle of the yugas from lower ages to higher ages and back down again. And that's the problem. It goes up and it comes back down again, <laughs> continually for 
lifetimes, for days and nights of Brahma, it's always in motion. And so the only way that we evolve as human beings is through raising our consciousness. And that can happen in any age, at any time, to any individual. And so by taking up the practice of Kriya Yoga, we drive a wedge into that Maya, I kind of envisioned it as Maya as that sea of duality that's there, and we're rising up out of it through that practice of Kriya Yoga. So, thinking about it more, it's like when we do that, then we come to the time when we really take on that spiritual path much more uh, seriously. And as I was saying, that's when also you are willing to face your tests karmically. You don't back off from that. And that's also a sign of evolution. Know that if you're doing things right, that will happen. It should happen. You should get tested inwardly, outwardly. It will come about because you're saying, that's what I want. I want to go in that direction. So from that, we move forward. And you'll find that that practice of Kriya Yoga, it is the stabilizing and grounding force that allows you to build spiritual power and strength over time. Several people during the classes have mentioned about this in different ways. But what I was thinking is that it's always so easy for us to say, oh, well, now I'm a Kriya Yogi and everything is different. Everything changes. And in one way, that's true. There is a great blessing that comes through taking that initiation and taking it at least once a year and several times a year from from now on. But also... It's something that happens through our daily practice. You know, Yogananda said this interesting thing. He said, in the beginning when you take up the spiritual life, and a meditation is what he was talking about specifically, he said it's important to emphasize relaxation. But then once you're relaxed, you need to start applying regularly will to your practice so that it stays dynamic. And that's so with Kriya Yoga. We need to start applying will to that practice so that it takes us deeper and deeper. I wanted to read just uh, one or two things from the autobiography of a yogi. And this is the science of Kriya Yoga, which, by the way, is a very interesting chapter. It's filled with interesting information and more than probably most of us can really absorb at one time. Master says, you know, if you practice a thousand Kriyas every day for a whole year, practice 365,000 Kriyas, and then in three years, a million, and therefore you're, you know, probably in cosmic consciousness. And then he adds the little sentence underneath that, that, Of course, only advanced yogis and those working with the guru can even take this up because the amount of spiritual energy coming through you, you would not be able to absorb, to handle. But he does, and then he goes on to say, yes, the the, uh, beginning Kriya Yogi, 
uh, starts practicing 14 to 28 per day, twice a day. But, but that simple commitment and practice is what moves us forward, and it is what gets to the place where we do practice a thousand kriyas a day eventually. And all of the, I was just thinking, all of the other things that Master talks about, that Yogananda talks about in that chapter of Kriya Yoga, they will come true for each one of us. But it takes time, and it takes our concerted, devoted effort as we move forward to actually achieve that. But it will happen. And it and in one way, thinking about it, all of you who do have Kriya Yoga and have been practicing, I was also thinking, wow, people here, 5, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years practicing Kriya Yoga, things are happening. And they may be subtle to where you don't notice, but you are evolving spiritually. You are growing spiritually. And that human evolution of consciousness is happening. So be aware, be, be conscious. One of the things that Kriya Yoga does when you get into the spine and practicing is that we're visualizing that current in the Sushumna. may not be quite there yet, but in visualizing it, we create a magnetism. Energy and magnetism are vital to the practice of Kriya Yoga. And as we create that magnetism, it starts to draw in the very first way that we get bound to delusion, and that is likes and dislikes. Those currents of the Irda and Pingala, they start to become magnetized inward toward the spine. And so I was thinking one of the ways that you may notice that you're evolving, because it's important to take heart that, hey, is anything happening after all this time, is that your likes and dislikes may be diminishing, may be losing power, may be not there as much. Notice that, because that is huge. That is one of the first ways, it is the first way, that we get trapped in delusion outwardly and from their attachments and self-definitions and all of that. But really take notice. The thing that I wanted to read from the autobiography is the science of Kriya Yoga. And it's just, there are many, many paragraphs in there, but this is one that caught my eye. By Kriya, the outgoing life force is not wasted and abused in the senses, but it is constrained to reunite with subtler spinal energies. By such reinforcement of life, the yogi's body and brain cells are electrified with the spiritual elixir. And that's actually what I felt this week, (laughs) is that electrifying energy of all of us being together. And it is happening. It's very, very powerful. The other thing that I wanted to say about Kriya Yoga is that the other powerful part, and it's the way, it's the reason why Kriya, although if you look up Kriya Yoga online, you can, you know, get everything, supposedly. But the main important thing that you cannot get in that way is the Guru's magnetism. And there's a very um, interesting part 
of uh, the essence of the Bhagavad Gita where this is talked about, it's not only that the guru comes and stands next to us or we visualize him and and he's there and he helps us and little by little as he stands there uh you know we visualize him and his presence and and little by little we start to become more of a magnet it's said that he shares his magnetism with us and so that power of the guru to come in and really make that a complete practice. Kriya Yoga is a, a technique of yoga. It's powerful just on its own, but it won't take you to liberation. You can only go so far and then you fall back again because the ego is still there. But when you attune to the guru, and again, these are things that happen over lifetimes, days, months, years, lifetimes, many that we've been on, but that we attune to that guru and we keep that focus happening. And we find that that power of the guru comes into the Kriya practice and really makes that energy flow. You know, in, uh, in this area, we have rivers and they're very interesting to go to the river and just see the uh, explanation, not explanation, the example of what happens inwardly to us in our spines is that that river in the center part is very powerful. It's flowing like crazy and you can get in it and float down and it's a lot of fun. But on the side parts... It has a lot of eddies and whirlpools, and it's very easy for things. We go up and put a little stick in the water off of one of the bridges up there and watch it flow down, and sometimes they go shooting on down, but a lot of times they'll get caught in those side eddies and just be there for a long time, whirling around and around, and then they work their way back up, and then maybe they get out of that and go on down. But that's just an outward example of what very dynamically is happening for us inwardly with the Guru's grace. And Yogananda said repeatedly, he said, that phrase that Jesus said in the Bible, to many, to as many as received him, and that's what we're doing with attuning to the guru in the practice of Kriya Yoga, to as many as received him, to them gave he power, meaning the grace, to become the sons of God. And that's our destiny. Kriya Yoga is very, very powerful. And it's something that if we hang on to it, no matter what happens inwardly, or outwardly, those crash of breaking worlds that come inwardly as well as outwardly, we will have the strength through that daily, regular, twice-a-day practice of Kriya Yoga to really withstand, but more than withstand, to really see it for what it is, to really understand what's going on, and to not be shaken, to stand Unshaken. I'd like to close by reading the last paragraph in the New Path on the chapter of Kriya Yoga. And this is quoting Yogananda. I wasn't sent to the West by Christ and the great masters of India, Yogananda often told his audiences, to dogmatize you with a new theology. Jesus himself asked Babaji 
to send someone here to teach you the science of Kriya Yoga, that people might learn how to commune with God directly. I want to help you toward the, att- the attainment of actual experience of Him through your daily practice of Kriya Yoga. He added, the time for knowing God has come. When I was rereading uh, Autobiography of a Yogi in preparation for uh, today's talk, I was very struck by the fact that Yogananda actually spends two full chapters talking about great scientists, um, in both cases very saintly men or saints. In fact, one of them, Luther Burbank, the great horticulturist, plant physiologist, he actually dedicated his book to as an American saint. Actually, it's fairly early in his book, uh, Yogananda's book, when you come to J.C. Bose. And Jagadish Chandra Bose actually shows up as the eighth chapter, and it's right after the levitating saint. So you've gone through the first seven chapters, and your mouth is sort of hanging open with everything you've read, almost with incredulity, and suddenly, boom, you're rooted back down into the practical world and how spirituality and practicality intersect. You know, I found it a very odd thing that our very term scientist as an occupation stems from uh, a humorous article that was published in 1834 where uh, a philosopher was talking about uh, people who study different uh, science-type pursuits, geology and other uh, areas of natural history. And since we called people who studied art, who painted, sang, things like that, we called them artists, that maybe people who study science should be called scientists. And he actually meant it as a pejorative or derisive term. In fact, up until that point, if you studied one of the sciences, you were considered a natural philosopher. And there was a much greater intersection between religion and spirituality and the natural sciences. And so if you went back to Newton, who uh, did his writing of calculus and uh, really the foundation of our modern classical uh, physics comes from him. He was just before the start of Dwapara Yuga. If you advance forward to Darwin, who published his work right at the beginning of the Civil War in the United States, right around the early 1860s, which, by the way, is when Lahiri met with Babaji, right at the time of the Civil War. Isn't that an interesting coincidence? So I think if you went to either one of those scientists and said, well, now you've done this scientific thing, and that really has nothing to do with God and spirituality correctly. Well, I think Newton, who was a very cantankerous fellow, probably would have grabbed the nearest object and chucked it at you because you were being such a fool. And even Darwin, I have a feeling Darwin, who was a little more shy and retiring, 
um, might look at you and with great disappointment say, you missed the point of my work. Because both of them, as natural philosophers of those times, saw the work they did as part and parcel of the spiritual search, that it was theirs to explore God and creation and God's manifestation in creation. And somehow, since 1834, it's devolved into this thing where it's supposed to be separate from religion. I was very much taken with two thoughts when I was meditating on this topic, and the first one was about Kriya practice itself from the Gita, as Yogananda explained it, uh, was even a little practice of this inward religion will free you from dire fears and colossal sufferings. And then later, thinking on his life and the start of, as Jyotish explained, the third wave, when at that garden party in Beverly Hills, he sent out into the ether this thought form to start independent colonies based on living for God and living simply. And I think there's actually a tremendous intersection here. And as we talk about accelerating human evolution, I think both things are important. The Kriya Yoga technique and this concept of living in community with others also practicing Kriya. And as it turns out, as we talk today, you'll see that, yes, with Kriya Yoga practice, there is an individual evolution of our form in preparation for God-realization, and we're going to go through all the details of that, including the nervous system and our genetic structure. But it turns out we're actually influencing everyone around us with the changes that we are going through, both neurologically and genetically. And the same it is as it is for us, that these people around us are influencing us neurologically and genetically. So living in a community where you have a chance to bump shoulders with people who are doing the exact same processes you are, are dealing with the same kind of issues you are in your life and seeing how they handle it and they respond to things is having an influence on you. And we're going to go into this in a little detail. You know, when Master or Swami would talk about consciousness and our physical reality, they would often use the example of an ocean. That if you want to look just at physical reality, you'd start by looking at just the surface of the ocean. And if it's a particularly windy or blustery day, and there you are in your little physical rowboat on the surface of this ocean of consciousness, that you could be tossed around. Your biggest concerns may be trying to keep your food dry and yourself not to get wet or get seasick. Um, and that our physical lives exist at this more superficial level. But if we go down even 20 feet, suddenly we're down to a deeper level, which is much calmer. I think the way Yogananda would have described that, going down into uh, a greater depth in terms of consciousness would be to entering the, the realm of prana, of life force. And in fact, it's very interesting. One of the things that Yogananda did is he would use the term when talking about material things is he would say, we are made up of protons and electrons. And when we talk about prana, 
life force, which is a different form of energy, which is not a physical energy. It's a life force, pranic, subtle energy. He would talk about lifetrons as the particles that make up prana. And as we go deeper and deeper into this ocean of consciousness, we emerge into the field of thought, or thoughtrons make that up. And beyond that, we finally are deep enough where we're to pure consciousness itself. And all we feel is the great ecstasy and bliss of God. And Om reverberates, booms around us. And that is our reality. Space melts away. Time melts away. You know, I had a very curious experience the other day. I was uh, out running some errands in town, and I just happened to put in a, a CD of one of Yogananda's talks that I had actually not heard before. Uh, and I looked at it before I put it in, and I just noticed it was two months before I was born in 1951. It was the end of uh, one of their Christmas meditations at uh, out Mount Washington. And I started listening to this talk, and I realized after two or three minutes that Master just had this ecstatic, blissful energy in his voice, and it was transfixing. And here I was trying to drive my car down the road, and I kept getting sort of drawn into this where I'd want to start interiorizing like when we do Kriya. And I thought, how interesting that that's happening. And I'd like to go into that a little bit more about neurologically some of the things that might have been happening with that. But I realized that I was going to have to make a choice at that point, and it was either pull over, listen to the whole talk, and meditate for a while, or maybe because I actually had some appointments I had to get to, do it in little three- and five-minute sections. And I realized after about 15 or 20 minutes of this talk, every time I would listen to it, that I realized it wasn't what he was saying, that he could have been giving the weather report, (laughs) but there was this consciousness of God's ecstasy, and there wasn't a scintilla of yearning in it. It was union. I am with God. There is nothing left I must strive for. There's nothing left that I must want. I have it already, and I give it to you. But much of what we do in the sciences is to deal with what's happening at the surface of this little ocean of consciousness. Even though we may know there are things happening more deeply in this ocean, much of what we do is trying to help people stay drier, keep their food dry, and not get seasick. (laughs) You know, Yogananda said a very profound thing. He said, the road to God is through our own nervous system. He actually said that um, uh, in the Rubaiyat of uh, Omar, Omar Khayyam in his, in his explanation of it. And elsewhere, he said, remember that the brain and nervous system are the altar of the spirit. And that really this process that we go through with Kriya Yoga is to accelerate this transformation of our nervous system so that we can transmit and transmute the billion watts of spiritual power that come to us in deeper meditation. And frankly, if that kind of power comes to us before our nervous system is prepared, 
it is a very thrilling experience. And I don't mean thrilling in necessarily a good way. So we do have to go through a process of transformation, um, of evolution, in fact. Well, how does this happen? Uh, how does this process happen? Well, in the chapter on Kriya Yoga, he mentions that really, if you, were, if you took an individual and said, all right, um, just by living rightly, how long would it take you to realize God and be able to merge back into God? And he said, basically, um, the minimum would be sort of one million years. Uh, and in fact, that's actually really understating how long it takes, that in fact it's really more like two million or more. I had a feeling when I wrote that that in fact it's much longer than that, and he just didn't he just didn't want to discourage people too much that it takes that long. But that's with living rightly. I mean, we're living in a situation here at Ananda and in our Ananda communities where we're living rightly and we're trying to do things rightly and we're trying to obey the, the laws of good health, eat the daily diet as Master uh, recommended to us. Um, but we also have Kriya Yoga. And this is the accelerant. This is the catalyst that allows us to grow much more rapidly. And as Parvati was mentioning, he said that uh, with even a few years of Kriya Yoga practice, if you could do them perfectly and could meditate for 8 to 12 hours a day, you could actually do that million years in three years by just doing your Kriya Yoga practice. For most of us, I think it's going to take quite a bit longer, but not as long as we probably expect. Well, what parts of the nervous system are at play in this whole process? Well, it turns out, and I'm going to pick up my brain model here. Actually, when I was getting ready this morning, my brain model asked if he could wear my Bose headphones in celebration of uh, J.C. Bose. And I thought, well, you know, I hate to tell you this, but... uh, I, I don't think they were probably related. And he said, well, actually, that wasn't it. I just didn't want to hear your talk. So <laughs> I have to have some humor. Okay. So I'm holding up my brain model. This is just like my brain is oriented in my head. And remember, Anandi mentioned this briefly in her talk on Tuesday, that the most anterior part of the brain, this area that's right behind your forehead, uh, is the frontal lobes of the brain, and the most anterior portion of that is prefrontal lobes. And this is the part of our brain that we're really activating as part of our Kriya practice physiologically. Not talking about the subtle energy centers at this point. That's kind of one level deeper than we're going to go today. I'm just going to talk about plain neurological physiolo- uh, physiology. So that's the frontal lobes. And I'm going to take the outer part of the brain off. And you can see this sort of half-moon-shaped structure here. Well, we call that the limbic system. The limbic system is called that because it's shaped like a half-moon. Most of the structures in the brain are named by what they looked like long before we knew what they did. You know, by the way, um, just in this last year, um, there have been more centers mapped in the brain, and 100 new centers were just mapped in the brain this last year. It was really a big deal in my 
uh, literature that I read, that we're understanding more about areas of the brain that we thought didn't do anything. I always love that when they say, you know, this this is a junk area of the brain, or it's junk <laughs> DNA, um, or yeah, this hormone that we just found doesn't do anything. And I oh, there's a part of me that always just catches that and go, ha ha ha, let's wait ten years, let's wait twenty years, and. Uh, you know, I recommend melatonin for sleep for many of my older patients, particularly. And uh, when I was a medical student, they said it was a endogenous hallucinogen, means your brain produced it, but it doesn't do anything. And I remember I thought, melatonin, it does something. Okay, so this is... This is limbic system. Limbic system is the part of our brain that deals with instinctual function and with um, more basic emotion things like fear, panic, anger. And uh, it's kind of our built-in functional safety net that lets us stay out of trouble and reproduce, but not much more than that. And it turns out that the frontal lobes of the brain, as we activate them during our Kriya practice, in fact, any meditative practice does this, but Kriya is particularly good this way, is it begins to transfer the function of our brain away from being more limbic system focused further forward in the brain to these higher uh, brain centers. This part of our brain that has what we call the executive function allows us to concentrate. It's the part of our brain that determines whether we're happy or sad. Uh, Our creativity, our ability to learn, all influenced by the prefrontal lobes of the brain. And by activating it, you find all these things are changed and improved. Well, it turns out that our brain is constantly rewiring itself in response to how we are using it. So the more you meditate, the better you get at meditation and the more effective it is in helping it, in helping us. As the prefrontal lobes get activated, we find there's an automatic de-emphasis of the limbic system and all the functions of the limbic system. So you will find someone who might have had anxiety disorders or a tendency toward depression uh, when they first started meditating, and you see them 20 years later, and they have to really think and remember, what did that feel like when I was anxious? Because it takes so much to make me feel anxious now compared to then. The second area I want to talk about is mirror neurons. I'm sorry. I just got the ons. Did anybody feel like yawning? That was mirror neurons. Actually, I saw this really uh, very interesting little video. A young man who was traveling around the world um, would go and stand in public places in different cultures and just start yawning and then film what happened as people walked by. And it was very interesting because some people would sort of say, go get some sleep. Um, In a few cultures, people would come up and sort of chide him for doing something as inappropriate as yawning in public, uh, which I thought was interesting. Um, But many people would pass him, and within 20 feet, they'd yawn themselves. Well, why does that happen, and why is that a spontaneous reflex that we see? Well, we think it's caused by mirror neurons. It turns out that our nervous system is replete. It is resplendent with these shimmering 
neurons that are constantly monitoring our world around us, and particularly creatures just like us, other human beings. And it's there to help us um, adapt and harmonize with what's happening around us. In fact, I learned very early on as a physician that I could have my mirror neurons, feel my, my mirror neurons as I talk to a patient, and often it would give me a lot of insight into what a person was feeling, both emotionally and physically, because I would begin to kind of feel those same things in myself. And it also taught me that you need to really keep your energy up because someone comes in and they're very angry. It would be easy to have your mirror neurons sort of twitching, shimmering with that, same emotion and begin to feel that ex- that ex- that same emotion yourself. <clears throat> but many things influence our mirror neurons. Music is one of them that influences them. I don't know how many of you um, had this sensation, but I remember when I came to the concert uh, on Wednesday night, sitting there, that the moment the the, uh, the choir started singing, there was this uh, sensation that. Not only should I sing along with them, which I was kind of already doing, but I should just get up there and sing with them. And it was a very odd experience. And I realized mirror neurons, that that's part of this urge we feel when we're around people that are behaving in a way similar to what we are. Um, And it influences our behavior and changes our nervous system. So living in a spiritual community really has a big effect on our nervous system um, that can be very beneficial in supporting Kriya Yoga practice and help us in this accelerating evolution of our nervous system to allow us to experience uh, deeper states of God consciousness. There's one other nerve I would like to talk about in the body, and that's the vagus nerve. And it's an interesting structure. It actually runs from our brain down through the center of our body and plugs into many different organs in our abdomen. And its, it, its end uh, position is actually plugging into what we call the enteric nervous system. Turns out there's a whole portion of our nervous system that is applied to um, our intestines and our colon. And so the bacteria that live in our colon, what we call our microbiome, how those are behaving actually has an influence on our brain function via the vagus nerve. When we do uh, yoga practices like hatha yoga or any of the breathing exercises, pranayama practices for energy control using breath, that much of the physical effect that we feel is via the, the vagus nerve being affected. In fact, in medicine right now, they're actually putting little stimulators underneath the skin like, you know, you'd put... Uh, um, you know, a pacemaker and someone to help control their heart. Actually, they're pacemakers for the vagus nerve because they found people with seizure disorders can have them controlled, um, that won't be controlled with medication, that they can actually control them with a vagus nerve pacemaker that fires when they start to have a seizure. People are doing weight loss with it. They're also controlling depression with that. So it shows the importance of the vagus nerve for good health, and we stimulate it 
naturally and in a very harmonious way when we do our Kriya Yoga practice. Particularly the higher Kriyas, for those of you have, who have the third and fourth Kriya, you may notice that just as you start your exhalation, that you may feel kind of a flushing throughout your upper body and in your abdomen and chest. And some of that is stimulation of the vagus nerve. And uh, I always know I'm doing my Kriyas well, those higher Kriyas well, when I feel that because I've gotten relaxed enough that that's getting stimulated. Well, how about our microbiome? I touched on this very briefly, and I just want to make a brief comment on this because it was when this first became understood broadly in medicine about five years ago, I began to understand why many of master's specific health recommendations, particularly as dietary recommendations, made sense. Because essentially what we're doing with our Kriya Yoga lifestyle, our lifestyle is Kriya Bonds, one of the things we do is we literally groom our microbiome to have it healthy so that the communication between the bacteria viruses and fungi that live in our colon with the rest of our body are really um, made most efficient and best as possible. It turns out, in fact, it's not just sending small uh, chemical messengers, which we know happens. In fact, again, this is one of those things. We've known for many, many decades that there's these small little uh, units called small-chain fatty acids. They're called SCFAs, small-chain fatty acids. And we were thought that was just a product of digestion. And it turns out they're messengers, and they actually are important, okay? Another thing you just heard today, small-chain fatty acids, okay? And very much impacted by diet. Well, where does our microbiome come from? Where does this, uh, um, these hitchhikers that we carry along, which actually outnumber us quite considerably in terms of cell, uh, cellular gen- genetics, there's more genetic material in our microbiome than in the rest of our body. Well, it turns out um, we get that at birth, our mothers. So we get um, the main part of our genetic material from both our parents, but the energy centers in our cells that generate all the energy that our uh, cells operate on physically uh, are actually a specific kind of unit called a mitochondria. And the DNA for that is separate from our main DNA. It's actually much more ancient than our DNA. And we get that only from our mother. So we get two things from our mother's Uniquely, one is our the start of our microbiome, and the second thing is our mitochondria or our cellular production of energy. Those come just from mom. It turns out, microbiome is very plastic in how it works with the rest of our body. That it's very changeable. In fact, here's the thing that just boggled my mind. It turns out that our body is constantly swapping and exchanging genetic information, DNA with all the microbiome that you carry. So it's not like you're born with DNA and you die with that DNA. It turns out that DNA is being restructured. It's actually being sculpted by many factors in your life. One is the microbiome. One is the functioning of your nervous system. That also sculpts 
your, your microbiome. So living rightly, you have this healthy microbiome, you're following master's daily diet, you're doing all the things you should for good health. You're also doing your Kriya yoga practice. It means there's this multifactorial process that's happening to refine us. Well, what about our microbiome? Well, it turns out we share a microbiome with everybody around us. It's kind of a communal thing. And so, and this just happens automatically. We touch things, we share things. Um, This stuff just gets swapped around. It's just happening constantly. And the thing that's interesting about it is, okay, the bacteria that I'm going to be sharing with people is taking on some aspects of my genetics. And I've just passed that on to somebody else. Well, they're getting a little bit of my genetics when I interact with them. Isn't that interesting? Again, it kind of is taking us away from this idea that our genetic material is this rigid, non-changing structure, that it's actually something that has changeability. Built within the DNA, in fact, are uh, genes that are able to turn on or off. When we're born, they're They come to us in a given state, turned on or off, but with our lifestyle, we may change the position or the of that switch. Let's let's say you're someone who was born with the gene that we know is involved with uh, alcoholism, but you're living, you know, you're raised in the Ananda schools, um, you're practicing Kriya Yoga, and you've never gone down the road of drinking alcohol, well, at some point that switch will realize it's not needed and it will turn off. And when that person has children, they're going to pass on that switch in the off position. So they've actually changed their their DNA by lifestyle. You know, there was an interesting thing I saw discussed in my medical literature. This was uh, just uh, about five years ago, and they were sort of looking at the comparison between human DNA and a chimpanzee's DNA. And they found that actually they're much more similar than I would have guessed. If someone had just asked me off a, you know, as a, a guess 15 or 20 years ago, I'd Go, I probably would have said something, well, it's probably 85, 90%, pretty close. Um, well, in fact, it's 98.8%. Uh, so there's 1.2% difference in genetic material between us and um, the chimpanzee. And actually, I told one of my colleagues that, and he said, okay, humans here, chimpanzees here, where do I put surgeons and politicians? <laughs> So we're actually talking, you know, it was interesting. I was listening to Parvati, how she mentioned as we advance into Dwapara Yuga, people will be living longer, that actually the way their bodies manifest may be different. They may be taller. And is that an unreasonable thing to think about? Don't genetic changes take evolutionarily, don't they take thousands, maybe even millions of years? Uh Uh-uh-uh. 
genetics are plastic, they're changeable. And we're finding that some of these kinds of changes are not unreasonable to at least consider, just based on what we already know about the changeability of DNA. Last thing I, I just wanted to mention is um, exosomes. And I'm just mentioning this because it's very interesting and you're going to hear more about it. Exosomes are tiny little uh, uh, spheres. They're smaller than a red blood cell, quite tiny. They're found in your bloodstream. And they're little spheres coated with fat so that they can travel through your bloodstream uh, without being... Uh, interfered with by other entities like immune blood cells, white blood cells. And they often contain messenger information, both genetic material and often chemical messengers that flow throughout your body. And it's another way of your body signaling another part of your body with information. A good example of exosomes in action is people who've had a head injury. Someone's fallen over, hit their head, and been unconscious for 20 minutes. And six months later, they're finding they're having headaches, they're having uh, depression, um, their health is not good. uh, They're having all sorts of physical woes, the kind of thing we actually see happen with head injuries. Well, a... uh, group of physicians actually looked at this and they found that if you took the blood of people who'd had injury, head injuries and took out the exosomes, these little messenger uh, spherical particles, um, and you took just the exosomes and you put those into an animal, the animal would almost immediately begin behaving like they had a head injury. They did another experiment where they took animals that were extremely fit, could run on their little hamster wheel for eight hours a day quite happily, (laughs) and they took the exosomes out of those animals and they put them in other animals who really didn't have access to much exercise. And what they found is when they exercised the animals that had just gotten these exosomes, that much of the exercise ability that the... um, healthy rats had, had been transferred to these other rats. So exosomes are something that are coming to us in one more way that uh, we'll probably find that Kriya Yoga and other meditative practices affect us physiologically and transform us for the future. So in summary, I would just say, yes, as individuals, It's unquestionable that physiologically Kriya Yoga practice is transforming us. But remember, everyone around us benefits. And when we spend time around other Kriya bonds, other people who are meditating and living rightly, they are impacting us. And just remember that little concept of mirror neurons. It's always watching when you listen to music, when you watch a movie. They're not trying to decide is it a good or a bad thing. When you're watching an exciting movie, they're going, they're up there too, trying to adapt to what you're seeing, and they don't know whether it's real or not. So just some food for thought on that. So God bless you all. Let's all stand up. If you want to do an energization exercise, you could inhale and tense the body.
take one nice deep breath. Okay, and let's be seated. What Dr. Peter was sharing just now about the nervous system and all these fascinating uh, exosomes and all these terms that we've never heard, at least I've never heard before, maybe you have, it made me think how Master taught us the simple axiom, environment is stronger than willpower. And here, especially in this week, but for those of us who live in spiritual community, we have an environment that supports us. And yes, we have some explanations now for how and why uh, we are benefited by that uh, connection, that magnetic aura that's around us, but it's very, very real. And I wanted to just add a thought because I know that there are bound to be some people here as well as others who are watching this over the Internet, who may lament, but I don't live in a spiritual community. My spiritual community is one or two or something like that. Uh, They may feel a little left out of the party, um, but you are not because this network of consciousness is not local. It is universal. And when we get ourselves on a certain wavelength, space and time disappear. They are not limiting factors to our awareness. We have to make the effort to get on that wavelength. We have to make the effort to be in tune with a certain vibration in order to receive that. Um, Those little mirror neurons, we have to sort of aim them, get our little uh, satellite dish pointed in the right direction, if you will. But we certainly can do so. And obviously, having time like this together in this format gives us a real boost. I wanted to talk this morning about the, the middle part of the path, if you will. Um, I, I was thinking when, when I was given this topic, What's the talk that I would like to hear? And I thought, okay, let me try and give that talk if I was going to attend this. And whether you're brand new on the spiritual path or whether you've been at this for many decades, there is a natural inclination or a natural instinct to want to look towards the goal. And I remember as a child um, back in the day when we had textbooks that were for the whole year. So, you know, at the beginning of math class in third grade or science class or whatever, you know, you'd got this big whacking textbook and that was going to be your book for the whole year. And, you know, you had to not mess it up. You know, you had to not drop it or whatever. I would make a point. I, I can't say I did this faithfully every time, but I would generally at some point, I'd get curious and I'd flip to the last few pages of the book and I'd take a look and I'd see how freaked out I could get by (laughs) what I didn't understand and what I was hoping I would understand by the end of the book. But every once in a while, it's good 
to just look towards the end and and to recognize, okay, well, we're not there yet. What's next? How, for those for whom the honeymoon of the spiritual life is over, it's gone by, or even if you're in the honeymoon right now, it doesn't last forever. I have, I'm sorry to have to say that, but if you <laughs> happen to think that, um, there comes a point where we have to do the work. And this is something Parvati was addressing, and I'll just take that a little bit farther. Because the practice of Kriya and the practice of meditation in general, I realize I can't speak too specifically about Kriya, but the principles are universal. We have to learn to internalize those things, and we have to learn to make them part of our DNA Jyotish and Devi on Monday were reading from Autobiography of a Yogi, and they were quoting the passage where uh, Christ, Babaji is in constant communion with Christ, and together they have planned the spiritual technique of salvation for this age. And he sort of leaves it at that, the spiritual technique of salvation for this age is named Kriya Yoga. And whether we practice something named Kriya Yoga or whether we do something, because a number, a number of times in that chapter, Master says St. Paul practiced Kriya Yoga or a technique very similar to it, meaning something that works with energy and magnetism and learning to direct and focus that energy and magnetism in such a way that we draw inward. All of us have the challenge, and Master illustrates this very clearly in the chapter on Kriya Yoga from Autobiography of a Yogi that Parvati and and Dr. Peter were both quoting from. He says, we have to get in between the mind and the life force that is committed to the senses so that we are not bound by the senses. Otherwise, our life force is constantly pouring out into the senses and we are bound in this world of maya, this world of delusion. And we may feel very stuck. And we do the math, and Master says it takes a million years of of healthy spiritual living to achieve freedom. And my goodness, a million years, that's a long time. Wow. And then, of course, he goes into how Kriya Yoga, by focusing the energy, drawing the energy into the spine, learning how to raise that energy and lower that energy, move that energy, draw it consciously inward, how it speeds up that evolution. And I did a little math in honor of Gyandev and others um, in this regard. And I remember once in Bangalore working with a group of Kriya bonds, and Master says, you know, Kriya is the airplane route. And I said, if you compare the trip from Bangalore to Delhi, if you were going to take that bullock cart, you know, they have bullock carts in India. We don't really have so many of them here. But uh, if you were going to make that trip of 1,200 miles or so, 
It would take you a period of months. I mean, it really depends on how energetic you were. If you went 15 miles a day with that bullock cart, you know, it might take you a little less than three months. It's a long time. By comparison, the airplane route takes two hours. I remember flying it many times. If we look at the ratio of 30 seconds for one Kriya is a year of spiritual evolution, if you do the math on that, that is a factor of a million to one, a little over a million actually to one, which means, now of course Master says it takes three years to achieve it. I mean, if you could do a million Kriyas in one year, you'd be doing Kriya 24 by 7, and there aren't very many people who can do that, of course. But while you're practicing Kriya, you are going at a million times the speed that you would otherwise go. If those of us who count steps, you know, when we, when we walk daily and get our exercise and go for those 10,000 steps in a day, if you measure your step, and your step is somewhere between two feet and, say, two and a half feet, which is kind of a, an average step, maybe a little less than two feet, a million times that, hundreds of miles per step, 400 500 miles, maybe 600 miles if you have a big step, per every step. That's how fast you're going when you're practicing Kriya Yoga. If you think, I mean, we travel sometimes great distances, and and others here too, back and forth to India or Russia or even just across this country, and you think you're about to make a trip, and oh, it's only 7,000 miles, 8,000 miles, Wow, 15, 16, 20 steps and you'd be there? Oh my goodness. Wow. Because an airplane ride of 20 hours can take a long time having done that. In our lives, we have to learn to do two things at the same time. Keep our attention on the goal and never be discouraged about where we are now. Master says, and we've heard this quoted different times during this week, he says, make today's meditation deeper than yesterday's meditation. Make tomorrow's meditation deeper than today's meditation. Now, I don't know about you, but I have not hit 100% with that in my life. I I have hit 100% in terms of wanting to achieve it, But the actual achieving of it is not so easy to do. But if we withhold, if we suspend the judgment side, instead of saying, oh, bad me, my meditation today wasn't so good, well, okay, tomorrow will be better, rather just say, did I do my best? Did I give it what I could give today? That's the more important part of it. We have to learn to relax in the moment and get connected to the joy of moving the energy. Many years ago when I was in the construction trades, I learned by watching people uh, mostly and occasionally by reading things or getting some formal instruction. But I remember an experience of watching two drywallers, two sheetrock nailers, come into a house, a big house, 
two guys, just the two of them. They went through the whole house in two days, nailed up all the wallboard, all the sheetrock, all through the whole house. Just two of them. I remember a similar job where seven or eight of us who didn't know as the trade as well, it took a week to do a similar job. Was so, I mean, it was fact, orders of magnitude more. And I remember noticing that these two guys, they had a certain authority. Now, I mean, you think, I mean, it's a fairly humble trade. You know, you're nailing up wallboard. I mean, it's not exotic or elaborate. But every move that they made, there's just an awful lot that they didn't do. You know, an awful lot of stuff that we did do. I mean, I remember, I remember measuring, you know, you have to cut around these little outlet boxes and you know, so one guy's up on the ladder measuring very carefully and, you know, well, it's 46 and 37, you know, 3 eighths to this spot. And, you know, you're carefully trying to draw this mark and then you hold the thing up there and, oops, it didn't quite fit. Uh, and these guys would just, they'd get the center point of the box and they'd put a red X there. They would hang the sheet without cutting anything, put a little tool in there and drill a little hole over to the edge and they go to the outside of the box and trace the outside of the box done the little thing would fall out the board would go tight against the wall it was amazing i mean just watching that but the authority came with the moving of energy and the same thing happens with kriya and it to a degree it happens with any other technique it certainly happens with energization it certainly happens with other techniques that involve the movement and the focus of energy, the technique teaches us. The, the flow of energy teaches us. And we learn something from our own experience. And that, yes, that experience becomes a habit. But I want to just touch briefly. Um, many years ago, now about 37 years ago, in fact, it's interesting, today, Friday of Spiritual Renewal Week, was the day that I came, 37 years ago. It was at the end of August in that year, but it was Friday of Spiritual Renewal Week. And I had the great blessing of meeting Prakash and others who were doing the yoga teacher training or the, or the apprentice program at the time. And I remember Prakash was teaching us a class some weeks after I came in that year. And... The class was on creating habits, creating good habits in particular. And in the wisdom of my 19 years, I raised my hand and I said, I disagree, I'm sorry. <laughs> the goal is to get beyond habit. Uh, excuse me, why are we wanting to create good habits if we want to go beyond habits? And Prakash, very patiently, uh, so internally grateful for the patience, explained to me, you know, it's a whole lot easier to give up a good habit than it is to give up a bad habit. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> wake up call. But so habit is a terrific friend if we use it in the right way. And I would suggest that we use habit to get ourselves to the meditation seat. Because having that, and Maria earlier in the week gave us as the challenge, if you don't meditate, learn to meditate. If you do meditate, take Kriya. If you've got Kriya, go deeper with Kriya. Get the higher Kriyas. 
deepen your practice. And I would like to just add one little bit to that, which is also go beyond habit. Because it's interesting, in the Mahabharata, habit was represented by the character Drona. And for those who have been to our ashrams and and Gurgaon in India, uh, there's a train station. Now the metro has come in Gurgaon, and the, the station of Gurgaon is called Guru Dronacharya. When you come in there, you're, you're, you're entering Drona's town. Well, Drona fought on the wrong side. And habit, though training both the good qualities and the bad qualities, nevertheless, in the end, is an enemy. How and why? Because habit does not give us devotion. And habit does not help us to go to the higher octaves. We have to get to the point where it's fresh every day. I was very touched to see and read that when Master would come to Sri Yukteswar's ashram and greet Sri Yukteswarji, this was in the time when he was in school, staying in a little boarding house near Serampur, he would ride his bicycle, and he had one hand on the handlebars, Anybody remember what was in the other hand? Flowers. Flowers. He would bring flowers every day to Sri Yukteswar. This is a young man bringing flowers to another man. And why? I mean, in India, if you're going to have flowers, you're going to have to do them every day because it's too hot. They're not going to (laughs) last. But there was this freshness of expression. There was this freshness of devotion Every day it's new. What is on your altar? I don't mean your physical altar, you know, with pictures and crystal candles, incense, whatever, all of those things. I mean, what's on your altar that's fresh today? And even not just the physical altar, the altar of your spirit, of your attitude, of your inward relationship with Master that you practice through the technique. Make that fresh every single day. Because habit can make us get to the chair, but habit inside the practice itself eventually becomes limiting. The the choir beautifully sang, Go On Alone. And there are two of Swamiji's songs that are Go On Alone. The other one is called Walk Like a Man. And in that song... Follow your dream, though it lead to worlds unknown. Life's but a shadow, once our dreams have flown. What if men cry, your dream is not our own? Your soul knows the answer. Go on alone. The first part of that little phrase, follow your dream, though it lead to worlds unknown. Your meditation will take you to worlds unknown. And there will come a time, and for each person it's different, but there will come a time where you will have to follow that path yourself. The blessings of the community will always be with you, and your blessings will also always go forward into the community. 
But there comes a point where you have to look for God alone and look for guru alone. And that part of the path, no one can tell you how to do it in words. You have to find it. And that finding comes with the awakening of the heart's natural love. And it comes with that sense of joyful, enthusiastic yearning and calling to God from the heart. And for all of us, wherever we find ourselves, and and in this way, comparisons are not helpful or useful. Don't think, well, I'm just getting started on the path and I've got a long way to go. Or, oh my goodness, I've been on the path for decades. That's not the point. The point is still today. The point is still how much can I offer and offer deeply and sensitively to God and Guru in my meditation. That's where we make the deepest progress. And I think Master gave us all of those statistics and all of that higher math about millions and ratios and this and that. I think he sort of gave that to us Westerners because we get fixated on results. But I want to close by reading, this is actually something that Parvati shared with me, and I, there's, there's just one line of it. This is a, a little section of Swamiji's commentary, or Master's commentary on the Bhagavad Gita, um, chapter 17, verse 25. And he's talking about giving up the attachment to, or the desire for specific results. I'll just read this one sentence. All these desired results do come in time to the sincere seeker, but giving up attachment to those specific results will keep one focused on doing rather than on reaping benefits from one's practice and therefore on continued effort until there is no sense of doing, doer, and done because one is merged in the infinite. Namaste.